down with pneumonia, and they just weren't able to make the trip home for Christmas. So uh, you'll get to hear him again someday, I'm sure. He's much better than we are, I promise you. We are in part 13. Can you believe I've gotten 13 messages out of the four chapters of Philippians? Don't say yes, please. Don't say yes, you can believe that. Um, hope you can make it tonight. If you have not seen the movie Overcomer, it's a great message of forgiveness. And what better message is there going into a new year than forgiveness? You know what? Here's the fact of the matter. I'll just preach a mini-sermon right here at the beginning. If you can't forgive, you can't be forgiven. So it's a pretty important deal, right? So be here at 6 o'clock. It'll be a great movie. Have a great time of fellowship. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. Uh, You know, if you think about it, there's not many words in the English language that have a greater meaning, at least I believe, than the word freedom. Uh, There are other words whose meanings rival that word, words like like liberty and, and uh, forgiveness. But, but in the end, each of those are really just examples of that word freedom. And by the way, uh, if you're looking on your iPhone for this week's sermon notes, they're not there. For some reason, it did not save this week, and I apologize for that. Uh, just found out about that before service time. But George will have the scripture verses up there for you anyway. And uh, so we'll try to get that ironed out and figured out during the week this week. But again, the word freedom has been defined as the ability to think and to express oneself freely. You know, this nation that we live in was born as a result of fighting for freedom from the tyranny of a of a governmental ruler, and by and large, then and now, people are more willing to lay down their lives for freedom and the causes of freedom than anything else. And, you know, when when a person in our country does harm to someone else, uh, that person is placed behind bars and, in essence, loses their freedoms, right? Right? In fact, the most famous statue in America is the Statue of Liberty because ours is a nation that people clamor to get into. Why? Because of their desire to experience the same freedoms that you and I have, have experienced all of our lives. And in America, we have, we have freedom to worship as we want. We have the freedom of expression. We, ha- we are free to form our own convictions. And we are free... To dream our dreams. Our Constitution says it. We have the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This word freedom, however, is is not an English word. We didn't invent it. God did. Um, He set us free. And one of the great things about God is that in spite of the fact that the entire universe is his creation, here's perhaps the most amazing freedom of all. He gave you and I, who are the crown jewels of his creation, minds to think freely, hearts that can love freely, and wills that have the choice to obey or not to obey God. And it's our freedom to choose which one we want. God didn't create us to be 
mindless puppets or even high-tech robots that, that go through the motions that have been programmed onto a hard drive somewhere. God would find no, no delight in doing that. He wants us to worship him and obey him because of a choice that we have made to worship and obey. When we come together to worship uh, in singing or, or praying together, giving to support the work of the church, or, we do so because we love God. So no other reason. We, we love God and we freely made the choice to do those things. And when we do, the Bible tells us that it is a sweet-smelling fragrance in the nostrils of God. The other side of this freedom, however, is that we're also free to disobey. We're free to not love God. We're free to disregard any type of service to him. And without exception, when we choose to travel a road of disobedience to God, that will only lead us to a dead end, and we come upon what, we, what is known as an addiction. You say, Pastor, that's a little strong terminology for what you're talking about, isn't it? Well, no, it isn't, because addiction is when you find yourself trapped inside a cell of your own making. When you become a victim to habits that started wrong and have continued to be wrong to the point where they have intensified to the degree where we are unable to break away from them. That is an addiction. This tragic scenario is precisely the reason that God sent his son Jesus. And that Jesus willingly left the splendors of heaven and came down to an addictive, incarcerated earth He came to set us free from our addiction to sin. Now, I'm going to be getting to Philippians here in just a moment. Excuse me. But I want you to turn with me initially this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Not this first one necessarily. I'm just going to read it for you, and then I'll get to Matthew chapter 6 in just a moment. But we're all familiar, right, with, with what the Great Commission is? Jesus gave it to us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all things that I have commanded them. Commanded you, excuse me. But did you know that Jesus also had a commission for himself when he came to this earth? He was commissioned by his heavenly father to come down here to set people free, knowing that each of us, given this freedom to choose our own way, would often abuse that freedom. We're told of his commission, clear back in the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter number 61. It's a familiar passage, I'm sure. It's repeated again when Jesus came, uh, Luke gives it to us again in Luke chapter number 4. But I'm going to read the version from Isaiah 61 to you just real quickly. Uh, Isaiah makes it very clear in his prophecy concerning Jesus the Messiah. He writes these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion 
to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 750 years later, as I said, Jesus spoke those almost exact words about himself when he was standing in the synagogue in Nazareth. He spoke to those people and said those words, and when he concluded, he said, this prophecy is today fulfilled in your hearing. He was announcing to them that the one that Isaiah had prophesied about was now here in the person of Jesus. And... Then Jesus said a little bit later in another gospel, John chapter number 8, verses 31 and 31 and 32, excuse me. If you abide in my word, and then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's come to set the captives free. He's come to open the doors of the prison. Now, you can take that literally, or you can take it in the spiritual sense, which I believe is the accurate interpretation. He came to set us free from sin. We have this addiction to sin that controls us, and until Jesus comes and sets us free, we will always be enslaved to it. You'll know the truth, Jesus, and the truth will set you free. And then he adds these words in verse number 36. He said, if the Son sets you free, then you shall be free indeed. Well, those who are addicted to sin will have to confess their blindness of their actions from the cells that they put themselves in. Jesus has come to open the cell doors. He's come to proclaim freedom to us. As, uh, who are captive to sin. So then the question becomes this, and believe it or not, I'm still getting to Matthew 6. The question then becomes this. Why is it that people respond often half-heartedly to the deliverance, to the freedom that Jesus offers? Why would anyone not respond to that kind of offer? I wonder sometimes if it might be because of familiarity. You know, we've, we've heard that passage, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We've heard it so often, I wonder if perhaps that saying isn't true that familiarity breeds contempt. We know it, we've heard it, but it's become so commonplace with us that we don't take it for what it is designed to do. It's designed, duh, to set us free. Right? How many of you want to be free? Absolutely. You could ask that question in in an auditorium with 10,000 people and almost every hand would go up. But the truth of the matter is there would be many of those 10,000 who desire that freedom, but they're not willing to do what is necessary to obtain that freedom, and that is to ask Jesus to forgive them, to set them free from the bonds of sin, and to redeem them and make them his own. It's amazing with that kind of offer that not everyone is saved. 
You see, even though God has made us free and given us lives that are to be lived in liberty and love and in power, there are many that are still enslaved to sin and to the addictions that they're bound to. Surely not many within the family of God, whether this family of God that's here this morning or the larger corporate family of God, not many would confess to having addictions to, to alcohol or, or drug abuse or sexual addictions. But do we have other addictions? What about the addiction to worry? I'm not asking for a show of hands. The addiction to worry. I I believe that each of us eventually succumb to the addiction of worry. We may say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about me. But then we'll usually respond to someone saying those things to us with this. Well, that's easy for you to say. Or, or, well, that's just the way that it is. So I'm going to go on and be content to live right where I'm at. Is that really any different than saying, don't drink about me? Or don't trip out on me? You know, we excuse the sin of worry. Because we've been made to believe that it's not as bad because it it doesn't rank as highly on God's top ten list of sins, right? We've even attached a name to it. We called it an acceptable sin. In fact, we've probably come to believe that we can rationalize and justify our worry more than any other type of sin. Yeah, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have been prone to worry? No, you'll notice my hands up. Uh, I confess to you this morning, I'm much better at preaching on sin than I am on practicing, uh, on worry. I'm, whew, I got to say that again. I got to say that again. I, I'm much better at, at preaching about worry than I am on practicing not worrying. All right? So we're all in the same boat together this morning. But now, Matthew 6, here's what Jesus says about worry, beginning with verse number 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious or do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious or worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious or worried about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious or do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself itself. 
sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let me just say this morning that there's a big difference between caring about someone's welfare and worrying about them. Caring implies wise, prudent foresight and a necessary responsibility to care for the needs of others. But worry, on the other hand, is when you become mentally taxed and emotionally agitated and preoccupied with distressing fear or torment and burdens when you're bothered about things that might happen but may not happen. Maybe I need to ask it again. How many of you have ever worried hearing that definition? Absolutely. Several times during the, the course of this sermon series, I've, I've referenced William Barclay from Barclay's Bible Commentary, one of the finest that I know of. And he has this to say about worry and anxiety, and I want to share it with you. He says, and I quote, There's a right and a wrong anxiety, a right and a wrong carefulness. The worry which comes from too much involvement in the affairs of the world is always wrong. Worry about the future is always wrong. It is wrong because it is blind. It fails to see God's bounty and God's care. Worry is wrong when it means the expenditure of energy on non-essentials. Worry about how to face opposition and trials which come to Christians is wrong. Worry about how to please the wrong people is wrong. For it is not man whom we seek to please, but God. The right kind of anxiety, he goes on to say, is that when we take thought for each other. It's especially right for us to take thought of our fellow Christians and for the church. What is forbidden is disabling worry and not enabling foresight. Worry. The acceptable addiction. The acceptable sin. I think in plain terms, a practical example of what I believe Jesus is saying and what Barclay has commented is this. I have trouble, they're saying, with Christians who say that they are trusting God, for example, to provide them with a job, but then sit on their butt at home instead of out trying to find a job. You know what scriptures call that? They call that the sin of presumption. Assuming that God's going to do something and just drop it in our lap. And and we're worried about not having a job. But then we're not doing anything to find a job. We expect God to just drop it in our lap and we'll get paid $15 an hour for our expertise in flipping hamburgers. The sin of presumption. Now all of that to say this. Often the very ones who look down their noses at those who are caught up in addictions to alcohol and drugs and and pornography. They're the very ones who themselves are addicted to worry. Very quickly, just let me say this. I see four things from Jesus' words in Matthew 6 that we read a moment ago. And these things occur in the lives of those who are addicted to worry. Verse 25, for example, indicates that their value system has been confused. Verse number 31 tells us that worriers are often selfish. 
Verse 32 suggests that their distinctives get blurred. And verse number 34 tells us that the outcome is that we begin to dread tomorrow. Have any of you figured out by now why we sang about God's faithfulness this morning? You see, God's faithfulness is the antidote to worry. Has God ever failed anyone in this room this morning? Never. So why would we even consider the fact that God may let us down over something that we've been worrying about? God is faithful. He will always be faithful. He has never failed. He will never yet fail. And that brings me to Philippians chapter number 4. Beginning with verse number 4, Paul says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious or do not worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Peace instead of worry. That's a good trade, by the way. Peace instead of worry. I believe that this passage that I just read to you from Philippians 4 is the cure. It's a guaranteed means of escape from the sin of worry. But we have to practice what Paul tells us to do. Did you notice what he told us to do? Because if you didn't, if you didn't notice what he told you to do, you're not going to know what to do. God's not just going to drop peace into your lap. There are things that you can do to eliminate your worry and have the peace of God that passes all understanding. It'll work for each of us regardless of our age, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our position in life. Because he tells us in verse number 6 these words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now it's confession time. <clears throat> Got to sit down for confession time. I've been known... To have four o'clock in the morning worry experiences. You know what they look like. You wake up in the middle of the night and you stare at the ceiling because you can't go to sleep. Why can't you go to sleep? Because you're worrying. I started practicing something, though. I can stand up now. That was my confession. I started practicing something. I, I, I tried it this week. I woke up. And I had all kinds of things on my mind. Okay, we got to be out of our house by January 31st. We don't have any house to go to. 
Uh, God, what are you going to do about that? God, I'm going to be homeless in 30 days if something doesn't take place. So I decided if I'm going to preach this message, maybe I ought to start practicing this message. So here's what I did. I started just worshiping. And I laid there and I worshiped. And I reminded God how he's never failed me yet. I've reminded God that I'm aware of the fact that he has been faithful to me for many, many years. That he has blessed me above and beyond measure in so many ways I can't even begin to count. And I just laid there and I began worshiping him. uh, Worshiping him because he came and he died for me. He forgave my sins. He set me free. And you know what? I'm guessing I laid there worshiping for maybe 25, 30 minutes. Just thinking of everything that I could... I could remind God of his faithfulness, that I was aware of his faithfulness. And pretty soon I drifted off to sleep. Peaceful sleep. Those other times when I've had those four o'clock in the morning stare at ceiling experiences, often I wouldn't go back to sleep because my mind was preoccupied with what might happen but what might not happen. But this time, the peace of God, the peace of God settled in. You'll be amazed what worship and thanksgiving and just, you already know this, but I'm going to tell you. Just telling God what you're worried about. Secret, he already knows. But it's an act of faith on your part when you say to God, I've been worried about this. Forgive me of my worry because you've always been faithful. You've never let me down yet. Why would you start now? It changes the entire atmosphere. So simplified so you can remember it easily. Just memorize this. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. Say that with me. See how good of listeners you are. Worry, pray, there you got it. Now practice it. You may need to write it on a sticky note. Put it on the visor in your car or the mirror in your bathroom, the desk, your desk at work. Whatever it is that you see first every morning, even if it's your spouse's forehead, just go get a Sharpie and write it on their forehead when they're asleep. (laughs) I'm telling you that because it's that important. It really is because that needs to be the focus of our days. My life is in your hands, God. It's in your hands. You, you made me, you formed me from my mother's womb. You have been faithful to me all these years. You have never let me down, and you never will. So, God, I'm living today in the confidence that I have in you that it's going to be okay. I don't know where I'm going to live in 30 days yet, but I know that God's got a plan. And I'm just going to trust in it. And I'm going to quit losing sleep about it and know that whatever door he opens, I'm going to walk through. 
And whatever door he closes, I'm going to go search for the next door that he's opened. That's the way that it works. And the peace of God lets me know it's going to be okay. I'm not going to be out on the street freezing and cold on January 31st. God's already working on it. And he's faithful to bring what he has begun to pass. Stop worrying about things that you cannot change. Stop worrying about things that you're not responsible for. Stop worrying about things that you cannot control and that you don't have to answer for. It's wasted time. It's wasted life. Pray about everything. Everything that frightens you, everything that burdens you, everything that agitates you, everything that torments you. And after you've done that, you can ask yourself the question, what am I going to do with all this time I now have on my hands? Well, you may not ask yourself that question. But you may ask yourself this question. Why do I have this amazing peace in the midst of everything that's going on? It's because God is faithful. He's faithful. If you worry about nothing and pray about everything, I believe that you may just give yourself several hours a day, extra hours a day, and then the question becomes, what are you going to do with those extra hours? Well, believe it or not, I have some suggestions for you. Three suggestions as to what you can do with all that excess time. First of all, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. That's what Paul told us to do. Wouldn't you agree that trading your worry for rejoicing is a good trade? That, you know, trading those old worries that have paralyzed you, trading those for a heart of rejoicing, only a, only a masochist would refuse that kind of trade. And you'll notice that when Paul gives us those, that admonition there in verse number four, he doesn't just say rejoice. He says, and again, I say rejoice. He's trying to get into our heads the importance, how important that is to rejoice in the Lord. In practical terms, what that means to me is look for enjoyment in life. Replace your frown with a smile. Look on the lighter side of life. There was a comedian from my generation. His name was Fred Allen. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him or not, but he said it this way, and I kind of like it. He says, if you suppress your laughter, it'll go back down and spread your hips. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I, think that's, I think that's truth. Perhaps a better source for illustration, though, are the words of Solomon. He tells us in Proverbs 17, 22, A joyful heart is good medicine. He tells us then uh, on the importance of laughter in Proverbs 15, verses 13 and verses 15. He says in verse 13, A glad heart makes a cheerful face. He says in verse 15, A cheerful heart has a continual feast. Now, this is coming from the wisest man who ever lived. It might be good advice to take. A warning. 
Just in case you're wondering, do you know how to live alone? Be a spreader of bad news. Nobody wants to be around anybody that's continual bad news. No, nobody wants to be around any, somebody that when they walk in the room, it looks like it just got cloudy out. Nobody wants that. A second suggestion. Verse 5 tells us, and I'm interpreting this myself, relax. I know Paul uses the word reasonable, but I'm going to supplant it with the word relax. In verse 5, it really means lighten up with the expectations you have of other people. Ooh. Lighten up with the expectations you have of other people. And to give you a scriptural proof of that, you go to John chapter 8 and you find a story in which Jesus is involved. There's been a woman taken to him who has been caught in the very act of adultery. You remember the story. This embarrassed, shamed woman is laid at the feet of Jesus, naked. She's shivering in fear of what the law requires of those who have been caught in the act of adultery as she has been. That penalty is to be taken outside of the city and stoned. But here's what Jesus says. Now, keep in mind, Jesus didn't condone the fact that she was living an adulterous lifestyle. Let's just establish that. He's not condoning that at all. But he asks this of those who brought her before him. Which of you is without sin? Let him cast the first stone. In other words, hey guys, lighten up. You have this expectation of this woman who has been taken in a sinful act. Get real with yourself. Do you know what sinners do? They sin. Why would you expect her to act any different when she's not been forgiven? She's going to continue in sin. So lighten up. In fact, he gives them this admonition. Don't be too concerned about the stick in someone else's eye until you have first extracted the log from your own. Wow, that cuts, doesn't it? Lighten up your expectations of other people. I'll even add this. Parents, you might need to relax with your children. Okay? After all, they are pre-people. They're in the process. They're in the process of becoming real people. You may not think it sometimes. But again, the writer to Proverbs says, rebellion is born in the heart of a child. So don't think it unusual when your child acts in rebellion to you. It becomes your responsibility to drive that rebellion far from them. Okay? That was free. I'll I'll move on. Okay, so we've had... We've had uh, rejoice, we've had relax, and the third suggestion is this, rest, verse 7, the shalom, the peace of God which allows us to rest. Our hearts and minds need to be guarded. 
Did you catch that? Our hearts and minds need to be guarded by the peace of God which passes understanding. I read somewhere not too long ago that all illness, and this is talking about America, it's not talking necessarily about third world countries. In America, 85% of all illness in America is stress related. You agree? Disagree? You're free to do either. 85% is caused by you worrying about something that you have no control over, that you have no answer to. And the cure, the simple cure, is you have a faithful God. That you can take all your needs, all your petitions, all your concerns to, and he has the ability to do something about them. And not only that, but in the process of him doing something about them, he will give you the peace of God which passes understanding and allows you to quit staring at the ceiling and go back to sleep. Are you hearing me this morning? This is so simple. It's so simple and yet every one of us are prone to be given over to worry. How many of you think you're more important than a sparrow in God's eyes? How many of you think if God's going to take care of the lilies of the field, he's probably got more of a concern about you? That's what Jesus said. That's not what I'm saying this morning. That's what Jesus said. When you give it over to a faithful God who has never failed, in exchange you get the peace of God which passes all understanding. And I close with this. Three simple exercises that will allow us to put all of this into practice. And they're described for us in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 4. First is this. Fix your mind on positive thoughts. Don't worry about the what-ifs. Don't entertain yourself with the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Focus on positive thoughts. Uh, You know, (coughs) excuse me. I have learned that I need to be careful when I ask someone the question, how are you? Amen? You know why? Because they just might let me know. I better move on. Two, focus your mind on positive, encouraging examples. Paul says it this way. Look at me. Now, now hear me on this because this is a paraphrase. Paul is saying to those to whom he's writing and he's saying to us today, he says, look at me. I'm in prison. I have chains around my ankles, around my hands. And I very possibly could be led to the Colosseum any hour to be put to death for sport. And then I'm done. But instead, look at me because in the midst of these circumstances, I have chosen to rejoice in the Lord always. 
And again, I say rejoice. Now, I think if Paul can rejoice in those circumstances, you and I probably can rejoice in whatever our circumstances are. Practice the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says. Now, that can be anyone whom you regard as a spiritual godly mentor. Practice what you've seen and learned and heard. And thirdly and finally, as the musicians come, find God's peace in every circumstance. Let me give those three to you again. Focus on positive thoughts. Focus, on, focus your mind on positive, encouraging examples. And thirdly, find God's peace in every circumstance and situation. Worry will cause you to focus on wrong things. Focusing on God's peace will allow you to focus on right things. Here's why that's important, friends. Worrying about the wrong things, they're usually non-essential things. Non-essentials. I mean, yeah, I'm worried about having to be on the streets in 30 days. But you know what? Even if that were to happen, which it's not, it's not. I have faith that some of you will have an extra bedroom. Even if that were to come to pass, God's got a plan. He has a purpose. He's always been faithful. He's never let me down. So when you think about it, having a roof over my head and and the comforts of home, when it all comes down to it, that's really a non-essential. Because God's faithful. And he wants me to live victoriously. So if I... If I give myself over for the next 31 or 34 days, whatever it is, to worry, I'm guessing that sometime during that 34 days, I'm going to get sick. I'm guessing that sometimes during that period of time, you guys are going to get sick of me. And thirdly, I'm not going to be able to do what God has called me to do if I've given my mind over to worry. Amen? Stand with me, please. There are some of us that need to sing the words to this song this morning. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. Let's sing that again. Sing that again. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. For you are the potter and I am the clay. 
for you are the potter, I am the clay, mold me and make me, this is what I pray. Whoa, you know what I just thought of? How many of you think this world is going exactly as God planned it and everything's just wonderful with God? I don't think so. Do you think he's worried about it? I don't think so. You know why? Because he told us this is what it's going to look like. This is what the world's going to come to. But be encouraged, I have overcome the world. And because I have overcome, you are an overcomer. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray. Change my heart. Oh God, and forgive me of all the worry and all the stress. Make it ever true. Just make it like you, Jesus. Help me to trust you. Change my heart, oh God. I want to be like you, Jesus. May I be like you. Dear Jesus, this morning I'm praying that every person in this room who may be a constant worrier, even those of us, Lord, who who are given to worry from time to time. I'm asking, dear Jesus, that you change your heart. Rather than wasting all of that time and expending all of that energy on worrying, that we would be reminded this morning of your faithfulness. Be reminded of the fact that you have never, ever failed us. That you remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your faithfulness from back then is still your faithfulness today and will be your faithfulness tomorrow. And may the peace of God, which passes understanding, settle upon our hearts. Lord, as we enter this new year, help us to just purpose in our hearts that we're going to trust you more than we've ever trusted you before. That we're going to have our confidence in you and that you're going to make us more like you every day of the coming year. In Jesus' name, amen.